Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventurous Investor in Conversation. And I'm delighted to have with me Jerry Saleyup, who is Chief Strategist at Tricio uh, Investment Advisors, uh, who I quite often feature in my in my newsletter. I, an excellent outfit, do a lot of work talking to wealth advisors, family offices, uh, kind of high end IFAs. Welcome, Jerry. Hi, David. Good to see you. Uh, now, Jared and I have known each other for many years, and we like talking markets. So we thought we would keep it simple, actually, this time. And I've set Jerry the task of coming up with the five signals that investors should watch out for over the coming couple of quarters, taking us through to beginning of next year. Um, so I, I left Jerry. He's very good at charts, as amongst many other things that he's very good at. He's very good at charts and measures and signals. Um, I've left him to go away and come up with five things we should watch out for. Jerry, let's kick off. Number one, what should well, we watch the, out? The first thing, unfortunately, is not something we can chart. It's uh, Russia, war in Ukraine. And that's just world markets since the rumors started at the end of last year and obviously when things really kicked off in February this year. And it's just one of those things that we don't know how it's going to end. Yeah. We don't know what's going to happen next. But yeah. we do know that the markets are still wary of what's going on there. The impact on the Eurozone in terms of the energy crisis has been huge. And in terms of you know, the, the whole inflation uh, spike that we've seen in many parts of the world, you can point some of the blame to this particular war. So all we can do is hope for resolution at some stage. And then we'll deal with, you know, the investment story after that. Uh, on that one, Jerry, I, I, I suppose from my vantage point, the ones I, the kind of caveats I'd add to what you're saying as well is I think that people should watch, everybody's watching out for the big thing, which is inflation, natural gas prices, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think if I were an investor, I'd watch out for two outliers. One is, that, I've mentioned this before, that actually that Putin does a ceasefire, um, just surprises everybody and just says, you know what? You know, I'm not going to get any more, so I'm just going to stay here and just let everybody stew. And I think um, that's more of a possibility that everybody's letting on, yeah? Because I think everybody sort of worked, thought that's it, we're in for a long old war, it's going to drag on forever, and it's going to be all, you know, energy prices going up forever. Uh, there's a possibility, but I just say, you know what, enough is enough, I'm, I'm just going to bag what I take. And the other possibility, which is the other side of the fence, <laughs> uh, which is he just escalates um, and uh, does something incredibly... Well, I suppose stupid from our point of view, possibly rational from his point of view. And I think those are the two outliers. And I think that the markets really haven't figured in either of those two yet. Uh, not that I'm saying they're likely or even probable, but I'm saying they are possible. OK, Jerry, um, what's, what should we watch out for next? Well, this kind of falls on the back of that. And that would be oil prices, David. And it's one of those things that we've been looking at for a long, long time. And we do think oil prices are going to come off the boil and work lower now. Leaning against this, I always like to say, you know, here's where I'm wrong. Obviously, the Russian war in Ukraine. Two, Saudi Arabia, you know, we've seen officials come out and say, look, if oil prices drop, we may have to rethink about our uh, quotas again. Those are very realistic things to worry about. But the way we look at it, the risk is recession fears become reality in the U.S., U.K., and the Eurozone. China is not exactly galloping along in terms of economic demand. So there is some demand side pressure for lower prices. On the supply side, we think Russia is basically putting the oil into the market just at a lower price. And yeah. I think it's going to be yeah. difficult. We're going back to yeah. you know, 2020 here. It's going to be difficult for the Saudis to impose discipline on OPEC plus at this stage of the juncture. They all need a pump. They all need the money. So we're looking for oil prices to work below $95 in Brent 
on a permanent basis, well, not permanent, but on a sustained basis, start edging below that 91 spike low we saw and go back towards testing support 85. And we're actually looking for oil to drop towards 75 and $65 a barrel over the next few wow. quarters. Okay. And, and what, uh, with all of these things, they're all just pro- probability percentages, I suppose. What probability percentage of the next couple of quarters would you give it to going to as low as 65? Small probability? Uh, large? I'd say around 10% to 15 but I'd say okay. we're going to be aiming in that direction. So we could be at 85, 80, working towards 65. Do you think there's any chance it would breach 65? Do you think it might head even sharply lower? I mean, we did. I mean, that did happen a couple of years ago. <laughs> it went to zero. <laughs> Negative. If, 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 you, if you look at the chart, you'd say, yeah, 65. We could definitely, if momentum builds and we start breaking lower, let's say we're all talking about a hard landing, a hard recession in the U.S., you know, we yeah. can give it some economic cover if you want. The UK, no demand whatsoever for petrol. You know, everybody's on strike. Motorways are gridlocked. Whatever you want, story you want to put on it, we could definitely see oil crash as sentiment turns really sour. What about the other side of the equation about oil prices suddenly peaking at, say, <coughs> above 120? You know, go back to my, my earlier point about the possibility, not probability, of an escalation in Ukraine. Do you think there's any chance we could see it spike above 130, you say? Um, yes, but I don't think it would be... I, I guess my view on, on the Russia-Ukraine conflict is that as long as it's contained to Russia and Ukraine, the rest of the world can deal with some of the unknowables. We can deal with you know natural gas supplies to Europe being shut off or put on or shut off and put on, if you will. We, we, we've, you know, the markets have kind of gotten used to that level of uncertainty. It's if things get silly outside of those borders and we start seeing some tensions leading to potential conflicts in other parts of the world. Now, you and I, well, I'm old enough to remember when the U.S. and Russia and Soviet Union played silly games all over the world in terms yep. of inciting yep. different things. And maybe that's going on now. Who knows? But it's one of those things that we'd all get worried if all of a sudden we started getting concerned about supply from the Middle East, from the Gulf states. If that started coming to the market, then, yeah, I think you'd see the spike higher. The other thing I suppose is is that if oil prices are lower, the thing I would add as well, it doesn't necessarily mean it's disastrous for oil equities. Um, oil equ- if, you, if you put a chart of most big oil equity stocks and the oil price, they're pretty much kind of close to a correlation of one. But I, all I would maintain is, is that if oil prices stay above certainly 85 to 90, most of those oil companies are still making pretty big amounts of money. And bear in mind, a lot of them also have big natural gas businesses as well, particularly like Shell. Um, so it, it's not a straight one for one that even if oil prices do go down as much as you say they will, or possibly say they will, the, the big energy majors will take a massive, massive hit. They might still be churning out loads of cash. Yes. And if you want to flip it at, uh, let's say, crude's at $65 a barrel, all of a sudden BP, Shell and the other players can turn around to their respective government bodies and say, why are you imposing a windfall tax? Right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Okay, number three, what's next? Number three is a really tough one, and that would be bond yields. And we've seen a huge surge in guilt yields over the last month. We've seen a big surge in the dollar bonds and other European, even the European bonds are are all seeing higher yields. And it seems like central banks are committed to raising rates. We're all aware of recession risks, but inflation is a big beast that they need to slay. And I've read your stuff, David, and I agree. I think there is a big risk that U.S. bond yields, a 10-year yield, yeah. goes up towards 4%. Yeah. 
right now we're looking at the 3.5. That was a peak we saw earlier this year. And if we start turning above 3.5, I think a lot of bond fund managers are going to say, okay, let's, you know, step on the brakes here and see if we go to 4%, 4.5. And um, that'll be, you know, fine. For long-term investors, those are great places to try to you know, top up your bond portfolios if you're yeah. in the 60-40 or whatever. Yeah. Because bonds do play a role in a balanced portfolio. That's fine. All we're saying right now is that the risk is we're going to see higher yields on this particular move. In terms of, you know, gill yields, it's one of those things that we're all looking at the 3% area. And if we start breaking through there on a sustained basis, I think we're all talking 4% or higher for, for UK 10 years. In terms of the Eurozone, fair enough for the boon to go higher. But we're all looking at the Italian BTP. Because as the spread there starts to widen over the boon, then I think the ECB starts worrying about their transmission mechanism. And they've got yep. that new tool that they're probably just dying not to use. But they may have to use it to try to yep. compress the spread between Italy and Germany. As far as the U.S. is concerned, we all know that the housing market is basically focused on the long end. Not like in the U.K. where we all look at base rates for mortgages. In the U.S., it's a 10-year plus. But that, that figures the mortgage rates. So... If you see the U.S. 10-year knocking about 3.5, 4%, then the housing market's probably going to react even more in yeah. terms of maybe lower demand, maybe mortgages come under pressure. We can all start looking back to the you know global financial crisis of a, just over a decade ago and where we saw the housing market start to tip over. It's not going to be this bad, we hope, this time around. But these are the sort of things that we worry about. So we're looking at deals in the U.S. and the Eurozone and the U.K. pushing higher. What about two-year bond, two bonds? Is that a more sensitive measure? Now you're just getting tricky. Yes. <laughs> the the short-term bonds in the States are a lot more sensitive to Fed funds rate. And that's, you know, the tail it wags the dog or the wag it, you know, it, it's which one is moving more, more. That's a key thing. And over the last few weeks, we've actually seen the U.S. 10-year yield hold up and maybe even move a little higher than the two-year in terms of acceleration. So that means that the curve... Between or the spread yeah. between the U.S. ten-year yield and the U.S. two-year yield with the coupon curve, if you will, which got really inverted down to negative fifty basis points a couple of weeks ago. We don't think that's going to break much lower. We don't think it's going to invert a heck of a lot more. And looking out maybe two three years, we actually think it's going to basically de-invert or return to normal, if you will, and see the U.S. ten-year yield above the U.S. two-year uh, two-year yield. But that's you know looking out a bit. In other words. The U.S. 10-year could go to four, maybe four and a half, and maybe the U.S. two-year doesn't get that high. Um, there's a bunch of questions that follow on from there. I'll keep just to two of them. Number one, I suppose, is um, I've got about I'll talk about this in the Citywide column next week, but um, or actually it might be this week by the time this comes on. Um, cash or near cash or money market instruments. Uh, Morgan Stanley did a, a, a note just uh, last week, say that you know if you'd have held near cash investments so that that would typically be short duration bonds money market accounts that kind of stuff um that's been you know very defensive but in, in long-term investment terms it's been a pretty rubbish investment for the last 10 15 years um and that they're arguing now that actually does change actually that you know if you're starting to get yields closer to well already closer to two two and a half up to maybe three and a half and then maybe pushing up to four cash does become a little bit more attractive um, and i suppose my second question uh, is um, currency, which is um, should if we do, let's say British investors do to see ten-year U.S. Uh, bonds go above or Treasuries govies go above four and a half, um, the, you've always got this currency question: should you buy hedged or non-hedged? Those are really big questions. 
<laughs> yeah. I thought I'd no. throw both of them in the pot at the same time. The, the problem with cash, David, is, as you know, when we look at, you know, the ways to make money, cash is not it. It hasn't been that way since the 80s. And the reason for that is because equities do so well. And we've also been in one of the biggest bond bull markets ever since, you know, the late 80s till basically last year. So cash has been a place to avoid putting your money in. And we yeah. hold cash as a buffer when we take some money out of some asset class yeah. before we reinvest somewhere else. Yes, we, we have a bit of cash on hand. Now, interestingly enough, we just sent out our latest monthly uh, this morning, which you probably received. Yeah. And in it, we say at the punch up that we sorry, at the investment committee we had last week, we decided to raise our cash allocation. And that's the first time ever at Tricia. So it's one of those things that, yeah, we agree with you. Higher cash rates make holding cash not such a silly proposition at these levels. And yields may go higher. Now, the problem with that is obviously if inflation is ripping along and let's say somewhere between 5 and 10% and you're only getting 2% yeah, in terms yeah, of your yeah, cash deposit, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're still losing money in real terms. So it's one of those things that, yes, we can see the, the reason to hold cash, but make sure that you come up with ideas to try to reallocate it at some stage. Otherwise, you are going to be losing money if inflation's beating your cash rate, which at and these stages I, it is. I'd add on that, Jerry, as well, is, is that it's all good and well for lots of Morgan Stanley to do it for institutional investors. But most, most wealth advisors, most advisors, most private investors even, well, definitely, um, that their access to anywhere near institutional cash rates is virtually zero. Yeah, because the, the platforms yes. that you, you hold your money on don't pay you anything at all or very little. Uh, and your access to institutional money market accounts is extremely limited, which basically means that I suppose if you do want to capture what we're talking about, you are probably forced to do kind of short duration government bonds, be they sterling or, or dollar based. Yes. But I mean, there's also sort of like the added bit to the story. As yields go up, then the structured products, which have been dead for years, can actually start making sense again. Structured products, as you know, is can be labeled as an expensive way to trade options. But for certain investors, it does make sense to try to come up with ideas yep. that use your cash and higher yields can actually enhance the returns for some investors. So yep. it's one of those things that we're getting questions on from our clients is now that yields are picking up, what can we think about in terms of structured product ideas? And um, you know, we're, there is a general pickup and in interest there, which I think will probably grow as <laughs> interest rates go higher. And I would definitely put structured deposits in that category. I think, you know, they've been, yeah, you know, definitely. They've been a bit quiet for the last few years. One of the key providers left the market. Um, and But that's looking, I think, quite interesting. If, if you start getting interest rates at, well, certainly get one or two year bond yields, government bond yields at kind of 3%, then starts to become more interesting. So exactly. he hedging, hedging, what should we do about hedging? Should I, should I buy a hedged US uh, government uh, ETF tracker? No, this is... Really, really interesting, David, because usually we say don't hedge because it's one of those things where you take the exposure to the asset class. Part of that exposure should be the currency. Yeah. However, sterling is becoming a special case here. Yeah. And that's really sad. <laughs> it is so weak now, below 120 against the dollar, that it's one of those things where you say, okay, let's say it extends down to parity or, you know, 75 cents, whatever, you know, never before seen levels. Let's say sterling remains weak. Then the last thing I want to do is hedge my dollar risk. Because yeah. I'm taking that risk on purpose. I want to buy dollar equities, I want to buy dollar bonds, and I want to hold the dollar just because there is a chance that the dollar continues to strengthen. However, you and I both know that currencies trade in a rubber band, and the rubber band stretches and then bounces yeah. back unless it breaks. So let's take the view that the rubber band doesn't break in cable 
and we see 130 again, maybe even 150 in our lifetime, right? And this sounds silly because 150 used to be the floor. <laughs> but let's say we, we do see the potential to see 150 again in our lifetime. Then the last thing you want to do is put money into dollars without hedging yeah. it. Yeah. So right now, we when we talk to clients, we're saying you're better off unhedged at the moment. But as soon as we start seeing any signs of the dollar turning around on a sustained basis, then I think, yeah, people who are buying dollar assets outside of the U.S. would be well-placed to consider hedging the dollar risk. Now, this, of course, takes us down a rabbit hole, which is the cable rate, uh, which uh, for those uh, uninitiated is the dollar sterling rate. Um, I, 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 you know as well as I do that... Uh, <laughs> That there's a lot of pressure against the sterling at the moment, and, and we don't need to particularly list the reasons why. Um, it's a very long list, David. It is and growing longer by the day. I might point out. Anyway, um, but do, do you presumably you share my slightly bearish sentiment, which is you know probably one of the best safe haven investments you could do at the moment is a cable tracker. Um, I think Wisdom Tree do one as well because because <laughs> it's going to benefit. Um, but um, do you think do you do you a share that bearish view on sterling, sterling, or do you think that it might it might trip below one ten, which seems to be a kind of a, a, a key next target? What's your sense? I mean, none of us know. Yes, I, I think the EU referendum changed everything, and we don't want to talk about Brexit, but it yeah. did change everything in yeah. terms of we dropped from one fifty on the night of the referendum to one thirty two. And we haven't really come back. We, I think yeah. we popped above 140 in a few chances, but we haven't really held it. So it's one of those things where sterling needs a positive story. And interest rate differentials are not benefiting it at the moment. But let's say we get the Bank of England say rates are going to 10%. Some people might say, wow, they're going to back sterling. And they might buy sterling on that. Yeah. You and I both know, though, that rates of 10% would basically crush the UK economy. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. chances are cable traders would say, that's a really bad idea and sell yeah. the heck out of it. So I think the cable needs a dollar story to lessen. So yeah. in other words, we I need agree. to see US rates, expectations of higher rates start to decline. We need to see the Fed uh, chairman, instead of saying things are going to be painful and watch out for higher rates, we need to see more data dependency, more hmm, we may not have to raise rates that much, yeah. that sort of commentary. And that's not happening right now, and it may not happen until next year. So I think FX investors, FX traders are all leaning towards buy the dollar until you're told not to sort of trading. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and I, on the argument of interest rates going up, I think it's rather indicative that the one person who has been caught actually saying interest rates should be going up, which is economist Patrick Bedford, um, said, you know, obviously Liz Truss's ideas were terribly good and that actually the Bank of England could, could compensate by pushing interest rates up to 7%, busily retracted it <laughs> quite quickly. Um, because, of course, as you say, pretty much anything above 5% would crater large bits of the UK economy. So um, I, I, I'm not convinced that interest rates personally in the UK will go much above 3%, 4%. Um, and if that's the case, then sterling does look a bit weak. Uh, right, moving on, sticking with the UK, though, I think, what, what's your next What's your next thing we should watch? Uh, should we watch You're the right. UK economy? <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at the FTSE 250. And the reason for right. that is that the FTSE 100, as we all know, is the international composition yeah. of yeah. miners, oils, big banks, pharma, that sort of stuff. But if you're looking at UK PLC in terms of the bread and butter as you drive up and down the motorways, then we're talking FTSE 250. Yeah. And that's been crushed this year. The FTSE, two, the FTSE 100 is basically unchanged year to date, up, up or down a couple of percentage points. But the FTSE 250 is doing as badly as the other indices, down 20%, 18% at, at its depths in, back in June. 
And the risk that we see is that this resumes, this downwards move. So, so we're looking at the UK as potentially either being in recession already or starting to enter a recession. Bank of England has no choice but to raise rates a bit more to show that they're tough on inflation. Yeah. Yep. And then we got this whole cost of living crisis all over the headlines of all the you know major newspapers, not just the rags, not just the tabloids. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But, you yeah. Know, it's, it's a, it's a never-ending story. My my, you know, packet of butter costs twice what it did last year. I mean, yeah. that that story has room to run. It seems so. It's one of those things where we look at the two fifty two fifty, and we're looking for reasons to be positive, and we're not finding too many at the moment. Yeah. So we're thinking maybe another five to ten percent lower, wow. and we're looking at key support between sixteen nine fifty if you want to get precise on the charts. And then the next level is way down there at 15,000. So we've got lots of big gappy areas here in the chart. So we're saying, yes, at some stage, you want to buy the FTSE 250 because there's a good story there for the UK on a long-term basis. But right now, investors' nerves are being rattled. So you may see it come under pressure in the near term. Jerry, on the, uh, um, obviously, I, I do slightly share your pessimism on the UK economy. Um, but on, on the FTSE 250 uh, argument, should you buy an actively managed fund or a passively managed fund? Now, I think both you and I know, you know, the classic theory, efficient markets theory, blah, 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 blah. Um, we all both we both know that when it comes to small caps, that sort of that breaks down for all sorts of reasons because of asymmetries and all. And, and just it's just it, and there aren't actually many small cap uh, trackers in Europe anyway. Um, FTSE 250 is an odd sort of case. Uh, I, I, the evidence doesn't seem to be completely in about whether or not active or passive is better in the 250 because the mid cap contains within it a big range of obviously quite big companies that are only you know one step away from the FTSE 100. But there's a long tail of much smaller companies that have, we possibly could end up being relegated to the th- uh, to the FTSE small. So does active? Or- Hi, David. Yeah, I, I can see your point. And the way we look at it is the key thing is to make sure you're in a fund that doesn't charge you a heck of a lot of money. So yeah. if the tracker or manage, just make sure that the charge is, quote unquote, reasonable, because on a five year or longer basis, that charge is what can really determine yeah. whether or not yeah. you outperform or keep up with the benchmark. Agreed. Now, yeah, the 250 is tricky. Usually we'd say buy a tracker. But you're right. There are some smaller shares in there that if a fund manager has insight, you can maybe get that one, two, three, maybe even more, 5% difference in performance between an actively managed and a tracker. I haven't found a fund that does that, to be honest, on a sustained basis. But I'll be looking around. Yeah, that, that's a good story to look into. Okay, so what's our last thing we should be watching out for, Jerry? Your favorite, my favorite, gold. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. And no, but the reason we're looking at gold, and then remember, keep keep in mind that the last time I was bullish on gold was back when you know Bank of England um, was selling all their reserves. I think 1999, around then, 2000. Yeah, and it was below 300 dollars an ounce. Gordon Brown's Gordon Brown's great success. <laughs> yes, and, and to be bought, to be honest, I bought gold options. I laddered it into the trade, and to stick with the honesty, I got out around 320 thinking I was a hero because I made my money. <laughs> so yes. it was one of those things. It looked like a good idea at the time. But right now, gold has proven a couple of things. One is it's not the best inflation hedge in the world. Yeah, Two, even with Russia kicking off a yeah. big attack in Ukraine, gold didn't make new highs or hold them on a dollar basis. So it's one of those things where you say, gold, you're not really doing what you should be doing. Central banks are tightening policy. So the fiat money argument is getting a bit more tenuous. And the dollar is very strong which usually doesn't benefit gold. So you have these factors weighing on it. 
In terms of chart levels, we're looking at the 1675 area, maybe down to 1660. This is a big chunky area of support that we haven't been able to get down below since mid-2020. If we do start getting below this area, my charts say 1450, 1400, maybe even 1200 in gold. So for all those people who are holding gold, we're you know continuing our note of caution saying it's at big levels. These levels might give way. We think it probably will. And we'll have a decent sell-off to follow. And it's interesting. I, I would echo that message. I, I hold Newmont Mining, um, which is one of the, I think it is the world's biggest, or one of the world's biggest yep. low-cost miners. And I've noticed it. its share price has been getting a good kicking in the last couple of weeks, um, which I think tells you everything you need to know, really, which is that those guys could make money pretty much, you know, in, in gold below a thousand bucks. So um, I, I think that the writing is on the wall. And I agree with you 100%. You know, if gold hasn't spiked with high inflation and a major geopolitical conflict, uh, it's hard to believe what what's what it needs to do. Really, I mean, I suppose China invade Taiwan or, or yes, World War Three yes. or something like that. I mean, I'm not too sure. I mean, we've got inflation in the UK potentially above twenty percent according to Goldman Sachs next year. Yes, I'm not sure what Weimar Germany. Um, I don't know. It's, it's kind I of what else the yeah, the Russian attack in Ukraine spreads beyond the borders, and yeah, gold will find some spikes. If exactly what you said, if China tensions with Taiwan escalate to the point where it's a shooting war, yes, gold might spike, might spike higher. But barring those things, we think it'd probably work lower. One very last question, I suppose, before we wrap it up, Jay, and it's been great, um, is... Um, are, are we? Is it a bear market bounce or is markets normalized? Uh, you, you read my stuff, so you know I go on about this endlessly, and I'm not the only person who does. Um, you know, particularly the S and P 500, because it's the signal really that every most other markets operate off. Yeah, so it's the global benchmark in reality, uh, even though you have benchmarks like the MSCI World and ACWI. Um, I, I, I'm firmly in the. <laughs> Well, we see the market pull come back up about 10% like it did in the summer. It's a bear market bounce and you should just ignore it. Um, and there are those who say, actually, no, no, maybe, you know, maybe the S&P particularly has found a new balanced range around, I don't know, three nine four two something in that range. Um, and it's stabilizing. Um, and that the market is already pricing in all these earnings declines and the recession and more inflation. Uh, and we have to always remember not to look at this through a UK lens. Um, America is a different market. The economy might not slide into a deep, deep recession, which it might do in the UK. Interest, sorry, inflation rates might not sp uh, spike quite as heavily. But anyway, ignoring those things. Uh, have the markets hit trough or do you think we're in a bear market bounce? What's your hunch? My hunch is that we are going to maybe look at the lows, maybe even make new lows for the cycle, but then the S&P will bounce. And the reason for that is, like you said, the American cycle is, is going to be difficult to predict. Uh, we're looking for potentially the recession not to be a hard landing, yep. not to be a hard recession. And when I talk with John Carvely, our chief economist, who's been really good at markets, he's talking about the bigger risk is that we do a sideways meandering for maybe two or three years. And our view then is you want to buy shares or lean towards sectors that are dividend paying and we'll see the shares not crumble if interest rates remain at, let's say, three, three and a half, four percent. So it's going to be one of those weird markets that we're not used to, where we actually have a couple of years of going sideways. So we're not going to see big new lows. We might see new highs, but they may not last. And we may come back into exactly what you said, the middle of a range. And we just have to try to deal with that. Now, here's where FTSE traders will have an advantage because anybody who's been in the FTSE 100 since 1999 yeah. 
will know all about range trading. Yeah. <laughs> and where, you know, just when it looks like things are going up, you go, oh, no, not again. And we go back into the middle of the range. And to be blunt, dividend-paying shares may make the big comeback that we've all been waiting for. Well, as Jeremy Cox would say on that bombshell, um, equity, <laughs> equity income finally uh, makes <laughs> makes its comeback after many decades. Um, on that bombshell, thank you very much, Jerry Soler from uh, Trishio. Uh, do go and look at Trishio's web, investment advisor's website. They're very good. And, um, and I'm sure we'll be talking again. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you, David.